Please note the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and may not necessarily represent the views of the Social Democrats. Hello and welcome to the Social Democrats, the monthly podcast recorded and hosted here in Tipperary. We, the volunteers from the Tipperary Social Democrats, will chat with knowledgeable people on the national and local topics that interest you. I'm Ali. I'm Khan. I'm Brendan. And I'm Luke, and we're the elected officers of the Tipperary Social Democrats branch. Every month we'll discuss a different national topic such as education, transport, housing, health and mental health, and climate action, while bringing a local lens to these issues within TIP. We would also love to hear about the other issues that you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, so please get in touch through our social media pages or by email to tipperary at socialdemocrats.ie. We hope you enjoy the chats. Hi all, and welcome to this episode of the Social Demic Chats, where today, your host Brendan, will be chatting about the cervical check debacle with a true expert, a man who represents many of the unfortunate women who were let down with the screening as a solicitor, um, based out of uh, Cashelin Tipperary, uh, Keen O'Carroll. So welcome to the show, Keen. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for asking me. She's no, great to have you. Great to have you. Um, I think, you know, today, uh, from talking to you, Keen, um, you know, the, when I asked you to do this, the first thing he asked was, that, "How long do we have?" Because I, I think you know, the, you could spend episode after episode talking uh, through cervical check and, and so on and so forth with it. And in fairness, that's something you did yourself with Vicky um, Feelin through your podcast uh, in conversation with Vicky Feelin, um, and that is a, a fabulous portrayal, I suppose. Or, or I don't know, is it a fabulous? But um, it was a really good job of kind of getting to the personal side of of, of the the whole debacle and. Vicky was brilliant at um, going so deeply into the intimate details of her, her treatment and care, which I, I found really powerful. So yes. um, I think, like, you know, we're not going to probably compete with that or, or kind of go down that route of the personal story. So today, I think we're, we're probably going to look a little bit more at the legal side of this, which might be a little colder, more, more factual. Okay. Um, but uh, I suppose that podcast is there and... You know that that does such a good job, and I don't think there's, there's any point in rehashing it. And what we'll try to do is do that kind of, um, you know, how did you build the case? You know, the, the factors that you, the challenges you faced. Um, you know, some of the the key uh, cases or, or, or points, and how, how the women were treated. Um, the Scali report, the tribunal, a few things like that. We, we, we'll go through all of those parts okay. here, but we'll probably try to keep this under the hour. We'll see. We'll see how long it takes. You know, there's uh, only so much. There's <laughs> only so much the listener can take. Well, this is it. Yeah. Well, this is it. You know, especially when they're listening to me. Yeah? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of the the, the, the the kind of setting the scene for today, if, if we can, as such. Um, but before we kind of jump into all of that, like I'm conscious maybe. People mightn't be as familiar with you as I might have been, but some of the, the, the women that had to go through this uh, um, suffering, I suppose, is, is the right word to describe it. So would it be worth your while maybe just giving a little bit of background about yourself, maybe, and even going back to, like, you know, how did you enter law or why did, you, why did, why did the law call you? Um, and then uh, we, we can talk a little bit more about the, 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 the legal side then afterwards, you know? Um, well, I'm a native son of Cashel, and uh, I did a science degree after school. And I enjoyed that. I wasn't particularly good at it. But uh, in the course of doing that, I, was, I came into contact with law and I thought it was interesting. And I suppose the, the, the idea that it was all around well, words and language as opposed to the language of science, which was numerical uh, in any event. Um, certainly science has been a huge advantage to me through my legal practice. Um, and I qualified now about 25 years last year. And through that career, I've uh, focused on litigation. Initially, the whole broad range of litigation, including criminal litigation, mm-hmm. criminal defence work. I've always acted for individuals uh, and uh, either defending them if they were before the courts on a criminal charge or bringing plaintive actions for people who have been injured in various ways. And over the last 20 years, I suppose, it has been increasingly focused on medical negligence, which is essentially all we do in this practice now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I suppose just moving on then, uh, and before again, there was one thing I wanted to cover here before we jumped into the, the cervical check side of it. It was more a general kind of principle of, of law here um, around kind of the difference between negligence or, or when does something, an act become negligent, if that makes sense. Because sure. 
you know, there's a certain genuine mistakes happen or, or, or things happen, you know, but, but there is a difference between that and, and negligence in, in, the, in the eyes of the law, isn't there? Yes, well, in, in, in medical negligence, it's, it's quite different as well to other areas. So one of the difficulties here is that people talk about negligent acts. Um, you know, the doctor did something negligently. That's not how we look at it in legal practice. Um, so negligence is made up of three ingredients. You've got a breach of duty, which is an actionable wrong. That's where the doctor, if we want to put it that way, makes a mistake. But they have to make a mistake to a particular level. So the law says that in order for it to be a breach of duty, it must be that the doctor has done something that no other doctor would do if they were of similar specialist or general practice and they were operating with just ordinary care. But no other doctor would do this. So it's not that they've done something which some doctors would do and others wouldn't. Um, That is excused. The law allows for that. It also allows for a, a degree of error So it has to be quite serious. And then secondly, there has to be harm. And the final third ingredient is a causal connection. You have to prove that that breach of duty, that actionable mistake, actually caused the harm. The harm wouldn't have happened anyway. And when you have those three ingredients together, you now have negligence. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's And and that is an important part of this because I think some people are have an impression, um, you know, with, with th- these things, you know, well, mistakes happen, you know, you have to allow for mistakes, but there is a difference between a mistake and, and negligence, and, and that's a really important oh, ab- point. A- absolutely, and also, I, I think it is fair to say that the courts are quite protective of the medical profession, and I think it's right that they should be. Um, they are not exposed to frivolous litigation, and even though I sometimes hear doctors complain about the burden of litigation, The fact is that in Ireland, it is professional misconduct for me to bring proceedings for you or a client in the absence of a clear expert opinion from another expert of same standing in that specialty, declaring the action of that doctor to have fallen below an acceptable standard. Mm. In other areas of litigation, you can bring a case and prove it as you go along. In medical negligence, effectively, you have to prove your case before you can even start the proceedings. So there aren't frivolous cases brought. It simply doesn't happen in Ireland. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's a nice kind of uh, lead into kind of the the next part of this conversation was kind of, you know, how this case came about and how how you built it, you know. We're talking about the case of Vicky Jim Phelan. Yes, Vicky Phelan, yeah. uh, In particular, I suppose it's the first kind of case that that, that was taken here. so in the cervical check scandal. In the cervical check scandal, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. So the, I suppose my understanding of this, and again, uh, everything I'm saying here, I'm probably that step away from it compared to yourself. You know, I would I wouldn't be as close. But um, my reading of it, I suppose, like cervical check kind of started in, in 2008, and um, you know, Vicky was was screened kind of in the early stages of that, and uh, she got, I think, 2011, she got a, an all clear when she probably shouldn't have, and then there was this this audit that that happened basically in 2014 uh, and when it looked retrospectively it found a, a number of missed cases or, or, or cases that should have been picked up um, but they didn't tell anyone uh, about this uh, or communicated to the, to the patients themselves uh, and it was kind of much later then really in 2017 where Vicky kind of by chance really I think kind of saw a file uh, at her doctor's office that uh, she put two and two together with with the audit result, and mm-hmm. I think that's your probably first contact was shortly after that with with Vicky, was it, uh, where she came with this news to you that she she had seen this? Is that is that how it started, or, or what was the first contact with Vicky on on, on this? You know, well, well, yes. I mean, the first contact with her was we're we're talking now on what is it, the twenty seventh of January, twenty twenty two. So um, next week, four years ago, uh, was my first contact with her uh, here at the table we're sitting at, right. um, and. The wider public became aware of her case uh, effectively when she came out on the steps of court after it was settled for two and a half million euros um, just, what was it, 12 weeks later? Mm, Yeah. Um, And in looking at what happened there, there were two parts to uh, Vicky's case. You've got, in the first place, uh, you have this cytology error. So cytology is the science of looking down a microscope at cells, individual cells. And so when somebody has a cervical smear taken, uh, the cells are separated uh, through a process and then they're 
effectively placed evenly on a microscopic slide so that they can be seen more clearly and more readily by a screener. A screener isn't a doctor. Uh, the screener then looks at that smear and based on their training and their understanding, they determine whether there are abnormalities present. And if there are abnormalities present or they have a doubt about the presence of abnormalities, they pass that slide to a doctor who is a type of pathologist called a cytologist. So it's a doctor who specialises in abnormalities of cells. And typically these doctors are even more specialised by being dedicated in the gynaecological sub-specialty. Um, so an error, as you say, uh, occurred in that a 2011 smear that Vicky had taken was passed as being normal or no abnormality detected. Uh, and she went about her life and then roughly three years later, two and a half years later, she developed symptoms which caused her to go to a gynaecologist and one thing followed another and she was diagnosed with an invasive cervical cancer. Following that diagnosis, the cervical check program, in keeping with good international practice, had an audit running, uh, a cancer uh, audit, which was triggered when somebody was now diagnosed with a cancer, having had a normal smear within three years. Mm. So her diagnosis triggered that audit. Uh, the laboratory was contacted. They were a crowd called CPL in Texas. Uh, they pulled the slide, had a look at it, and reported back and said, oh, we see that there were abnormalities on that slide. And that was recorded and noted back to cervical check, along with several other people. Yeah. There were 15 in that batch, but there were lots of batches over the year. This is where the second issue arises. So mm. The first issue is That's not great, yeah. having a good quality of analysis within the laboratory. The second one is that that audit was not disclosed to her. She was actually told about it subsequently during a meeting with a doctor, but it was done in a way which wasn't particularly clear. And some, there were several other women who were told, oh, there was an audit and we had a look and uh, uh, it seems an opportunity was missed to diagnose your cancer earlier. But for the majority of people, they weren't told about that. Right. And so that's the non-disclosure issue. Yeah. And I've always taken the view that nobody died of non-disclosure, but I know a lot of women who have died from the mistakes in the laboratories. Mm. And our government likes to focus on the non-disclosure as the big sin and pass over the laboratories while telling us the whole time, oh, the laboratories are safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, it's, it's, in, it's interesting as well, like the, the labs as well, like, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of it was kind of early on, I suppose, you know, there was resource constraints, I suppose, in Ireland, and, and, and that was part of the reason why they were, they were outsourced. But then in, in uh, Dr. Scally's report, which we'll get to later, I suppose, mm. he focused a bit on the, the weighting that was put towards price as well on it, and it seemed to kind of nearly turn into a cost-saving measure on, on in, in certain ways, you know, that that was one of the key drivers behind the choice of these labs, more so than looking at their performance, uh, you know, the past performance for giving them future contracts and things like mm. that, which uh, it was quite interesting, you know, like in that regard that, you know, they, if the quality wasn't showing and there's a history of that, I suppose, you know, it might have been a different procurement uh, uh, setting might have maybe changed some of the, the settings for, for other women in the future, you know. But, uh, but yes, but you've, you've come to the nub of the yeah, issue, yeah. Um, Brendan. The point here is that outsourcing is the key to all of this. Yeah. Now, you made a point there as well that they may not have had capacity in Ireland and that argument has been made. I've heard it made several times. That's not actually true. Okay, right. Um, there were uh, labs all across Ireland who were at that stage conducting cervical cytology. Uh, cervical screening didn't begin when Cervical Check opened its doors in 2008. Cervical screening had been going on in Ireland for a long time before that, but it was less organized. Mm -hmm. It was ad hoc screening and typically women would go to their GP and on an opportunistic way, the GP would say, well, it's been two years or three years since you've had a smear, will we do one now? And that's how it was being done. It wasn't a call, an appointment uh, system. But there were over 300,000 smears being done a year in Ireland prior to cervical check. And after cervical check, it went up to maybe 360,000 euros. It varied in different years, so it's difficult to... Yeah. to but, but the capacity was certainly here. Yeah. What we did was to pick all of the 14 laboratories in Ireland and we shut them down. Right. so that we could have an outsourced system to for-profit laboratories 
in Ireland and in the United yeah. States with tentacles into the UK as well. That was a conscious decision made that at the time in 2008, Mary Harney was told in the Doyle, this will cost lives. Yeah. And uh, the head of quality uh, assurance within the National Screening Service uh, resigned yeah. Yeah. because he predicted that this would cost lives. Yeah. Uh, and so it came to pass. Yes. And the price point you made was, as Mary Harney crowed about in the Doyle, that she could secure this screening for one third the cost it was going to be in Ireland. Mm, yeah, and, and that's an interesting point that it wasn't a case that, oh, hindsight is perfect, you know, like it's easy, I suppose, to give out in hindsight, but there was people raising flags here straight up, you know, that they, they weren't comfortable with this, this concept of, of outsourcing. And as far as my understanding, again, you probably correct me on this, but the standards of screening over in America is, is different to here in that they do it more frequently so they don't look at the slides as deeply as maybe they would here where they do a less frequent screening. I think things have changed since right. but back then that was certainly case, the case. Yeah. They were looking at typically annual screening yeah. um, so the, uh, the uh, accuracy that was required was less. Yeah. See, so one of the key things that people have to remember as well in understanding this is that cervical cancer develops over a long period of time typically. Mm. Yeah. And so you have uh, the HPV virus or the human papilloma virus uh, infecting uh, cells around the cervix and within the cervical canal. And that infection will over time typically just be resolved by the body's immune system. But in about 10% of people, it won't. And that 10% of people will then go on to develop early abnormalities, which are precancerous. And if they're detected, sorry, they will either be eradicated by the immune system or they may go on into a, a more high-grade abnormality, which is precancerous. That high-grade abnormality needs to be detected so it can be removed. Mm. And if it's not, high-grade abnormalities tend to go on to be invasive cancers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the problem in our system was, and the statistics actually that were being published each year by Cervical Check actually showed this, that we were detecting about half the number of high-grade abnormalities from these outsourced laboratories than we were detecting from the single laboratory that remained in Ireland, which was the Coombe, mm. where 10% of screening was happening. And that was a red flag yeah. and an alarm bell going off. These labs are missing high-grade abnormalities, and those are the ones that are more likely to go on to become cancerous. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, a lot of early, very early red flags there straight up, you know, that's any kind of system of monitoring and governance should be picking up and, and acting on because I think that's the key thing was probably that you know some of these things might have been known and I think kind of letters were sent but then you know a letter was sent but wasn't followed up or there was no kind of throughput into it you know that that that, that was kind of where it stopped you know that they, they didn't seem to drive home or, or take responsibility for for the monitoring of these uh, the, the, the service that was being provided here you know well, there was a very clear agenda the, the very clear agenda was to save money and to outsource. There was mm. a belief, there was an almost, you must remember it yourself back then, oh, yeah. In, yeah. during that, that, that period. Uh, and a lot of it was very much a philosophy that was being uh, uh, driven by the Progressive Democrats and some of their allies, particularly in Fianna Fáil, that outsourcing was good. Mm. Co-location was the way to go with hospitals mm. and outsourcing for health services. Um, and and that price would dictate these things. Yeah, yeah. And, and if they had done it properly, there was nothing inherently wrong with outsourcing. But to outsource without very strict checks in place. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the last time a laboratory was actually inspected prior to Vicky Phelan's case was 2014, four years before that. And I don't know if there have been any inspections since then, yeah. other than Dr. Scully's visits. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. There may have been, but Cervical Check doesn't produce reports anymore, yeah. for whatever reason that is. Yeah, yeah, that's um, an interesting one, all right, the fact that they, they seem to have stopped monitoring. I, I know they're probably... Well, the they've stopped publishing, publishing anyway. Yeah. Who knows what, what, what yeah. they're monitoring. Yeah. You know, I'm not accusing them of abandoning their responsibilities yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Uh, they give assurances, but I, I, I'd like to see what has changed in the way laboratories are monitored. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully there have been significant changes. Yeah. But there, nothing has been published to suggest that there have. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, like I, I kind of come from a bit of an insurance background and, you know, there is a, within our space, you know, um, kind of need to own that relationship and, and make sure that it's performing to the highest level. I, I just, I can't mm. see that there, you know. Um, 
these were things which were which are in our mind when we're looking at different cases, and obviously certain cases have uh, come to trial, um, and in those situations there's an even closer scrutiny of things. But people are aware of there having been 221 women who were affected by this scandal. There have been far more than that. 221 was simply the number that they stopped counting at mm. uh, in 2018. But in those 221 cases, in each of those cases, an individual report came back of an audit review of that slide sometime between 2010 and 2018 into an office and cervical check. And it was addressed to one man. And that one man had responsibility to read those reports and pass them on to clinical uh, people within the organisation. He wasn't clinical. Uh, He was an administrator. But clinicians did read it as well. And none of those people seemed to have been alarmed by the fact that 10 reports came in saying we missed this cancer. Now it's 20. Mm. Next month it's 40. Then it's 100. Then it's 150. And on it goes. Mm. And then the reports came in of people dying. Yes. And then when they decided in 2016 to write to doctors and tell them about communicating this audit to people, they specifically put in a paragraph. And that initial guy that I said had all these reports addressed Mm. to him, he had a, it was shown through documents that were released that he had created a Word document which had paragraphs that you could opt in or opt out on the letter. You know, it's a template. And in that template was the famous paragraph that where the woman has died, simply put the report on her file. Don't tell her family what has happened. Um, And uh, and so, so that's the level of culpability that's going on here. People did know that there was a problem. Yeah. And they knew that there was a problem with the quality, but they also knew that there was a problem with the consequences, with people being seriously harmed and dying. And they engaged in a process of keeping that information from people deliberately. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And that has never been investigated. Yeah. Now, if you imagine the consequences for a family, yeah. and there are families that we've all learned the names of through this scandal, where their mothers have died and there are children involved. But there were other families before this scandal broke where women died and there were children involved too. I'm not saying that money solves problems, but it can be a hell of a help. Yeah. Um, and, and there's one family that we've acted for. And if Vicky Phelan's case had not come to light, if Vicky hadn't done what she did, that family would, on the uh, basically the instruction of the HSE have been scattered into foster care. Really? Wow. Uh, And when it came to settling that case, the HSE's lawyers wrote to us on their own behalf and on behalf of the laboratory, Quest Diagnostics, and said that damages or compensation for this woman and her children should be calculated on the basis of foster care. Really? And uh, and appalling. Children aged one and a half up to uh, mid-teens. Uh, in, 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 in a large family. Yeah. So, so th- th- there are many layers here to, mm-hmm. to, which give you a sense of how the state actually acts yeah. uh, or officers of the state and it's not pretty. Yeah. And you know those stories and, and this always gets me with, with any discussion around this like they're so real and like the impact of, of losing a loved one like you know I can't imagine it you know and it's just it, it always comes back it always gets me when when like stories like that come out you know like at the bottom of this this is it families are broken because of this you know people have raised yeah. you know you know grown up without their mothers you know and like in, in some cases you know this is or could have been prevented you know uh, and that's that's the, the crux of this like at the end of it that's that's what, what it is it's real people being really affected by by this you know could have been prevented it yeah. should have been prevented and again that comes back to the point that you made at the beginning which is crucial because people listening uh, will often say oh well like no system of testing is perfect this is a screening service it's not diagnostic do you not understand there's always going to be a certain error rate yes we understand that and the courts understand that these errors were errors of a magnitude that should not have happened. Yeah. This, in each of these cases, the abnormalities were plentiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and really, in most of those cases too, the laboratories have made very little effort yeah. at, at, uh, at defending yeah. the reading 
They'll defend other issues in the case, yeah. but they know that the errors that happened here were largely indefensible. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose you made a good point there, and I was probably going back to her, I probably initially thought about going with this, I suppose, was the building the case then for, for Fricky Feeling, like, and you're, you're talking about they, they weren't openly disclosing these, these issues, right? But when, when Vicky came to you, I suppose you had to go find this information. And was that even in itself difficult? Like, I, I could maybe think... No, it was actually very easy. <laughs> it got much more difficult after Vicky Feeling's case. Was that it? <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't know what they were dealing with, obviously, right. at that yeah, stage. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was very obvious that, that Vicky was in um, uh, a very difficult situation with her health at that stage. There was certainly no indication back in January of... Uh, 2018 when we started um, that Vicky was still going to be alive now yeah, four yeah. years later yeah. and it's fabulous yeah um, but she was very very sick and she talks about that herself so I'm not telling any mm, tales yeah. out of school here um, and so that case had to be progressed on a very urgent basis which mm. is why we got from you know first introductions yeah. to steps of the high court in 12 weeks um, and that's through a system called case management but you know, on the very first day, the first task that, that we're engaged in here and uh, is gathering medical records and then getting the, the material, the, the, the slide or slides from a laboratory where it's stored to an independent expert who's then going to review it mm. to give an opinion on whether there actually was evidence of abnormality there. And if there was, was it there in sufficient quantity and sufficiently obvious for it to be a breach of duty? as opposed to a normal screening error, yeah. which does happen. Mm. Um, so gathering all of that information was done within 10 days, and it was really easy. Right. After Vicky's case, well, then the shutters came down. Right. Cervical check didn't want to release their records in multiple cases because people now knew they were being contacted. Um, we were receiving instructions from some of those people. And uh, then they started sending people's files to affirm as solicitors where they were being checked before they were being released. Um, it was all of that going on. Right. The laboratories clammed up and wouldn't release slides. Uh, it took about six months before slides started moving, uh, more even, and it, it took a number of visits to the High Court to get that to happen. So all of that machinery of obstruction started to uh, crank right. up. Yeah, because there's another important point there that comes out in your mm. podcast with Vicky as well, and it's quite important when we go on to talk about the tribunal later. It wasn't just Vicky who, who had a case, I suppose. It was also her husband had a case, didn't he? You know, oh, indeed. They were co-plaintiffs, yeah. Yes, yeah, and this is an interesting point, um, and we come on to the tribunal later, but, you know, in these cases, it's not just the, the woman who has a case, it's also the, the husband and the children can have cases, and then... Um, when we get onto the tribunal, we talk about how, how those cases are excluded from the tribunal, as far as I understand it. So that's that's one of the reasons there. But it might be just worth putting that point in now, just so when we come back to it later, it, it, it makes sense, you know? True. Well, the husband may have a case, yes, yeah. um, and the children would rarely be plaintiffs in right, these cases. Right. But in certain situations where the parent is going is 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 dying, uh, the, the defendants may want to bring the children in as plaintiffs in order to fence off uh, more clearly any right of action they might have when they become adults. Adults, right, yeah. Okay. Um, it's just an interesting point when we get on because that was something when I listened to your podcast, mm. it was really interesting just how useless this was in, in ways that tribunal is. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> we, we would just stick to the case for a second then. So um, They've just extended its... Uh, <laughs> I heard. Yeah. Yeah. By another six months, <laughs> is it? That I presume that is to spare Minister Donnelly's blushes, yeah. um, because then he can say, well, it, isn't, uh, it, it, it hasn't closed its doors yet. Um, obviously, if he did close the doors uh, yesterday, as, as, as it should have, or Wednesday of this week, um, well, then he would have to face the answer of, well, how many cases went into your now over €3 million Euro, yeah. uh, tribunal? And the answer would be 10, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I, th I thought it was le I, less than 20 in my head anyway. Less but 20, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, fairly, it's yeah. pretty... Pathetic. I suppose while we're on it, maybe it might be worth talk, talking a little bit more about that because um, it, is, it, it, it did feel like... Um, a kind of, to me, it was a, an action to be seen making an action rather than yes. an, an action looking for a result, really, in, in my mind. And um, I don't know, like, there was, there was probably... An effort, I suppose, to try spare the dragging people through the courts, but ultimately, and you explained this quite well in your podcast, 
the tribunal isn't a tribunal like the hepatitis one was or anything like that. It is a court. Yes. Uh, in, in everything but name, it's a court. Yes. You have to fight everything through uh, in, in that tri- tribunal. I'll put in quotes here. You know, it's Absolutely. not, it's not a arriving, just kind of generally prove that you have been impacted and we will award you figure. This is a full-on case. And then there's, I think you said, three, three things... Um, you have to be the case to get in there, isn't that? There's conditions around it, like so. It's it's only the woman herself, isn't it? They, um, you have have to. You can't have had a private screening. They ruled out at the tribunal as well. Yes. Yeah, so you have to be either identified through the original uh, cancer audit review that, that that revealed the 221 women, or you were told that there was a discordance in the reading of your slide by the later RCOG review. Mm. Um, and so only people from those two categories can apply. But only the woman can apply. Yeah. Or in the case of her being dead, well, then her family can apply. Uh, but of course, as you said yourself there, like a husband's um, partners are very often directly involved in these. And people don't appreciate it, but... A lot of people who have had anything beyond a very early stage invasive cancer will not have surgery. They won't have a hysterectomy. Mm. Um, uh, They will more than likely have chemo radiotherapy. And the radiotherapy will very often include brachytherapy, which involves the most destructive and invasive. Obviously, it's life-saving in its intent and necessary and uh, and every effort is made to spare the woman. But typically, uh, she will suffer very, very considerable internal secondary damage mm. from the radiation. Usually, the intimate life of the couple is destroyed by this. Um, obviously, the woman is sent either by surgery or by radiotherapy into uh, a, uh, an immediate menopause. Mm. Um, uh, Bowel problems are extremely common, particularly yeah. from the radiation. Uh, psychological problems, naturally. An awful lot of these women are very young. They're unable to have any children or unable to complete their families. Mm. Young couples, I was talking to a couple, we were working on a case last week with them. And it, within a month of their honeymoon, she was diagnosed with the cancer that had been mm. negligently missed yeah. two years earlier. Um, they were denied the opportunity of having a family. Yeah. Uh, so the harm is really catastrophic, and yet the person who has suffered it may look quite normal to the mm, passerby, yeah. and the couple might look quite mm-hmm. normal, but their life, their married life, or their life as a couple together is totally That's changed, changed yeah. and an awful lot of marriages have not survived yeah, yeah. Um, cervical cancer. Yeah. Fairness to, to Vicky, she goes into that in great detail in, in your podcast, you know, yeah. and um, you know, it is, it is, you really get a sense for what it's like to go through that. And I know even like members of my family gone through cancer and I would have seen things but not understood them. But she actually, the detail she goes into in, in that podcast, they mm-hmm. actually made things an awful lot clearer for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny, I was learning that through, through her, you know, not, not through my own experience. It was and just, that's why she wanted to do it. Yeah. So that we, we, can, we, we have hours to talk through exactly what, mm. how it affected her yeah. and then how it affected her physically, yeah. how it affected her, her psychologically, how it affected her family life, yeah. her intimate life. And then she goes on then to describe the treatment and how that works yeah. and what it's like it's going through it from that. Yeah. So it, it, it yeah. is quite yeah. helpful. But she wanted it as a resource for other women yeah. going through this and yeah. families. Yeah, yeah, no, and I thought it was brilliant and I couldn't recommend it anymore and I suppose there's not much point to me harping on about it too much here because I think if you really want to get the, the account of it, that's that's where you go, you know, and uh, and it's well well worth listening to there in, in that regard. But I suppose just going back to the tribunal, I think, you mm. know, uh, I suppose like kind of going back to that concept of like, <laughs> what was the point of it? Like like the vast majority of the women who, who were taking these cases actually couldn't even apply for this tribunal, like like Vicky Feelings case, because her husband was the co-plaintiff there. Or, or uh, mm, yeah. you know, they wouldn't being able, they wouldn't qualify for the tribunal. You know yeah, what I mean? Like I mean, that shows you how, how many. And, and, and this isn't the tribunal's fault. Yes, this yes, is, it's just the, <laughs> this is um, in terms of which they're they're they're, yeah. they're set up to operate. You know, this was all pointed out to Stephen Donnelly. Yeah. Um, now it was the process was started um, under his under his um, predecessor. Uh, but uh, Simon Harris mm. being his predecessor, but he was the one who was liaising, in inverted commas, with, with the women in the 221 plus group uh, and, and the men in the 221 plus group. 
Um, and they made it very clear what their concerns were about the inadequacies of the way the tribunal was being uh, designed mm. and established. And the correspondence is very clear. Mm. It's, it's his way or the highway. Right, and yeah. um, it was, no, we, we, we are giving you this tribunal. That's what it looks like. And it won't be changed. Yeah. But as a result, now you have a tribunal, as you say, yeah. Vicky Phelan's case, if it was being brought today, couldn't be brought yeah, to the tribunal. Yeah. Ruth Morrissey's case, if it was being brought today, couldn't be brought to the tribunal. Actually, Emma Vicfahuna's case, God rest her soul, couldn't be brought to the yeah. tribunal. Um, pretty much any case that you've heard of. Yeah. And, and the funny thing I, well, funny is not the funny about it, like, the other thing is, that's kind of nearly used as a weapon as well against women. I, like, I remember uh, one, one survivor, uh, Lindsay Bennett there, she was quite to us, oh, why didn't you use the tribunal? As if she had chose not to do it. I know, mm. I know Lindsay was, uh, you, you didn't represent her, I don't believe, but, but it was, I thought it was a really, I just felt like, you know, why are you putting someone that sort of kind of, it, it looked like they were nearly blaming the, yeah. the, 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 the women right. for, not, for not using it. I just thought it was pathetic in, in my own mind. Like, now maybe, maybe they didn't understand the, the, the qualifying conditions for it, but it, it was just, it just felt like someone going out blaming the, the women for, yeah. for this, like, you know. And also that, that, that case was ultimately, I think, progressed um, through case management in the later phase of it. Mm. And there isn't a case management procedure mm. in the tribunal, so it... it it wouldn't have been able to deal with that. Mm. Uh, there hasn't been, the tribunal is open for about a year now, mm. I think. Mm. Um, no cases, as far as I know, have completed through it. Uh, so it, it can't deal with things quickly. Yeah. Maybe it can deal with things faster than mm. a normal, yeah. than an average high court case. Yeah. We'll see in due course. It, but the way it's set up is, um, it, it's not what was promised. Yeah. What was promised was an alternative to court. And that, of course, was necessary mm. because Leo Varadkar is Taoiseach as a response to questioning in the aftermath of Vicky Phelan's case said that no other, well, effectively it was at the, at the commencement of the next case, yeah. which was Ruth Morrissey. Um, he said that no other woman would have to go through the court process. Mm. And he couldn't, he couldn't make good that promise, that commitment. And it was thrown at him repeatedly, yeah. politically. And because of that misstep on his part, he then ordered an investigation into an alternative dispute resolution mechanism. And there isn't one. Mm. As long as the state was unwilling to accept responsibility yeah. for the running of cervical check. And that's one of the more remarkable aspects of this whole scandal, which a lot of people don't appreciate as well. The state, through the HSE and their defence bodies being the state claims agency, actually stood up in the High Court of Ireland and in the Supreme Court of Ireland mm. and argued that they were not responsible for the running and the errors of their own health service yeah. and the cervical check, which is part of it. Yeah. Um, and so because they were denying that and saying that it was for the labs to mop up, um, there was no mechanism where you could have a tribunal that wasn't um, a full court, fight yeah. forum like a yeah. court. Yeah. So they called it a tribunal. Yeah. And that's all. Yeah. They just put a badge on it and then they spent 1.7 million doing up three courtrooms, which nobody has used yet, um, and yeah. another million yeah. in everything from artworks to furnishings to staff. Mm. So it's probably over three million at this stage mm. they've spent on this thing. Um, and it's all to spare the blushes of a guy who misspoke. Yeah. And I understand that he misspoke. Mm. I understand that you know somebody came to him afterwards, presumably, and said, uh-oh, this is a problem. Um, but it was possible mm. for the state to honour the harm it had done to women. It had contractual guarantees or um, indemnities in place with these laboratories. And it was entirely possible for it to resolve its obligations, moral and legal, with women and families who were harmed by its actions and then mop up that problem with the laboratories. Yeah. And if they weren't able to mop up every single case and if there were a few cases that the labs were able to say, I ah, know you shouldn't have settled that case, we're not paying you mm. under our indemnity, yeah. well then so be it. Yeah. What would it have been? You yeah. know, five, ten million, yeah. you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's very, very little. But they would have been able to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, and just take take ownership and responsibility. That, Precisely. that was their problem. Precisely. 
Um, and, and they're still to this day, they're still refusing to do that. Yeah. And we've, every week there's a new little trick to try and wriggle out of yeah. um, even the consequences of the Supreme Court decision in, in Morrissey. Yeah. And I can assure you, there was no legal impediment to it. Right. It may have been tricky, tricky. in places. Um, and the High Court and Supreme Court judgments allude to this. Mm. Now, they don't directly mm. nail it, but they do uh, indicate that there was no ultimate obstacle yeah. to the state uh, doing what Leo Varadkar promised in the yeah. first place. Yeah. Resolve it with the women and follow up with your indemnities yeah. in the laboratory. Because the Supreme Court said, I know I'm going on a bit hearing this, but the Supreme Court pointed out that there were two indemnities in place. There was a contractual indemnity that the state could rely on with the mm. laboratories, but there was also a general legal indemnity because it was obvious that the laboratory was responsible at a kind of a micro level, mm-hmm. but at a macro level, the HSE yeah. was responsible. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's the delegation, you know, not being, you're not allowed to delegate responsibility for stuff like, you know, you own it. Even if you do outsource, you still are responsible for it. And, you know, as you say, standing up and taking ownership for that responsibility mm-hmm. and, and, and making the, the journey a bit easier for, for, for these women. Like, and, and I know it probably leads kind of into uh, the treatment, I suppose, is one way to describe it, of Ruth Morrissey and, and the way she was dragged through. So she was kind of the case after this promise was kind of not kept, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, I know from talking to you, you know, this case, I think, in particular, is one where you, you really felt they kind of dragged someone uh, through in, in a part of time of their life and they only had a little bit, you know, it was a really tough time for them, you know? And to be dragged through that not once but twice, you know, um, through the High Court and then the Supreme Court, it was, you know, probably uncalled for in some ways, was it? Or, or, it was, no. Yeah. I think, I think for, for the HSE, the, the laboratories are different and I kind of hold them to a different standard because they are commercial entities and the laboratories are not us. But the HSE is defended by, it's part of the state, it's an emanation of the state. Uh, it is defended by and represented by the state claims agency in these cases. And we are, we're all the shareholders, members, family members, whatever, of this big thing that we yeah. call yeah. the state. Um, yeah, to, if it was our mother, would we want them treated like that? Effectively, we are the people funding that treatment of, of these women, yes. you know? Yeah. And, and for them then to pick um, a ridiculous argument to go to the Supreme Court on, whatever about the High Court case, mm. Um, for them to pick this argument that, oh no, the court got it wrong, the, uh, the HSE does not have primary responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for the running of the HSE. It, the, 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 the High Court had actually found that there were two ways in which the HSE was responsible. It had a primary and inalienable responsibility for the running of the health service, for the running of cervical check, because it conceived it um, set it up and ran it. But it also said that it had a vicarious responsibility, which effectively means the type of responsibility that an employer has for the actions of an employee. Now, the Supreme Court did say that it didn't have a vicarious liability, but it did have the primary responsibility. Mm-hmm. It, it made absolutely no difference to the case, and the HSE had argued that it wasn't responsible at all. Nobody could credibly uh, expect a court to have gone with them mm, on that argument. Yeah. And yet they brought that spurious argument to the Supreme Court for a woman who was dying. Yeah. And like, it was crazy. Now, I would say, you know, from my reading of particularly the, the Supreme Court action, they were probably, and I, I think I, I asked you about this separate and, and you, you were kind of talking about maybe the hype that came after that high court case and this concept of, um, the bar, the bar that was perceived to have been set through the High Court case um, around the quality of the, 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 the screening. And it nearly, some people probably left with the impression that the screening had to be nearly 100% for it to work, you know? Yeah. I know now you kind of, you, you, you've for some very good arguments against it, but maybe that's worth pointing out here as well in this case here, or, or you know, when we're talking about the Supreme Court action, like, what, what was that Fiore about? You know, you know, did, was there ever a case here where the bar was set at 100% in screening, you know. Yeah, th- that's the argument that uh, that the screening community tried to make 
Um, so just to explain that, the, the High Court decision in Ruth Morrissey's case, there, there, there were two smears that were negligently um, r- reported as being normal in her case. One of them had an issue about adequacy. It, it didn't have enough cells on it to even form a view and therefore it shouldn't have been passed as being normal. But the more important, uh, for, for, from a legal argument point of view, the more important uh, slide was one where uh, there was a, a, a significant uh, abundance of abnormal cells and yet it had been passed as being no abnormality detected. Now, in, in looking at this case, the court had to come up with a test. What is the test when we're asking how do we judge the quality of a screener's work in a laboratory, the decision-making process they go through? So the court already had a test for medical negligence, but medical negligence applies to doctors. It doesn't apply to screeners or laboratory scientists mm. working on a bench at a microscope. And so in coming up with a test, it looked at our nearest neighbour, as we often do, we mm. look at, at good old Blighty, mm. and we say, well, what, do the, what does the UK do yeah. in this situation? And they had a case just like Ruth Morrissey's back in 1999, uh, 21 years before Ruth Morrissey's case, um, called Penny Palmer. And in that case, the Court of Appeal in the United Kingdom said that if a screener who isn't a doctor, if a screener looks down the microscope and sees something that they're not sure about, they have a doubt as to whether that slide is normal. They cannot pass it as being normal. Mm. Seems like a completely logical thing to me. They have instead to pass that slide to a doctor, a cytologist, as we discussed before, who then looks at it. And the doctor makes the final call based on the standard of medical negligence, which, as we discussed before, is the one from, from, from the Dunn and the National Maternity Hospital in Ireland. That test, the I have no doubt test, you could call it, was actually written down as um, absolute confidence. That was the shorthand language applied to that test, the absolute confidence test. And so in the Morrissey decision, in, in the Morrissey case, I should say, we brought that Penny Palmer case into it. And we said, this is the standard that exists in our nearest neighbor. The judge about seven or 10 days into a 37-day trial, asked the parties, he said, when we get to the end of this case, I'm going to want an opinion from each of you. So from the two laboratories and the HSE and us, four parties in the case, I'm going to ask you all these questions. And included in the questions was, what do you say is the standard that should apply to screening in Ireland? So we wrote in our submission, it should be Penny Palmer, it should be absolute confidence in inverted commas, which is, I have no doubt here, I'm not worried about a cell on this smear. And the laboratories and the, the, the laboratories agreed with that as the standard through their evidence. Their experts said, that's the standard we apply in our laboratories. Mm. And the HSE declined to comment, said, we, we, we have no opinion on this. Okay. Right? Yeah. Fast forward to the decision from the court. The court says everyone seems agreed, so fine, it's absolute confidence is the test in Ireland. And three days later, there's a meeting of doctors in the Department of Health or in the HSE, which we've been trying to, which was published, publicised at the time, by the way, we've been trying to get the HSE minutes of the meeting through Freedom of Information. Uh, they don't exist, it seems. Um, and a PR response was decided upon, and they came out uh, swinging swinging basically at uh, Judge Kevin Cross in his decision mm. and senior doctors were sent out to ridicule the idea of absolute confidence and that it was requiring doctors to have a level of certainty. And then the Irish Times called it absolute certainty on the front page by that Saturday and the whole thing just took off. Yeah, yeah. What Cross then called hysteria. Um, the hysteria was then criticised vaguely by Dr mm. Scally who said it was unfortunate to have a gendered term like hysteria being used. Um, and on it went. It yeah. was madness. Yeah. And Cross but was the, the judge now who was, was saying this. He was yeah. the, the yeah. High Court judge yeah. who, had, yeah. who had... But he hadn't formulated this test. This, yeah. this, this was, this was given, this was given to yeah. him yeah. and yeah. nobody seemed to have a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and ultimately the Supreme Court decision acknowledged that 
this is the standard. The language is unhelpful, calling yeah. it absolute confidence, but it is the absence of doubt. Yes. It has been the standard expected of practitioners in the UK for 23 years mm. now. It is the standard in Ireland, mm. and it does allow plenty of wiggle room for people to make the normal screening errors, things which are hard to interpret, abnormalities there in a small number, mm. or maybe hard to find. Yeah. Those will not fall foul of this test. Yeah. But if an abnormality is abundant and ought not to be missed by a screener taking normal care, well then, it will fall foul of that test. Mm. Yeah. As it should. it should. Yeah, no dead right. Yeah. Yeah. And but the point that one of my colleagues made about this is that the HSE went into court, the Supreme Court, having ignored or failed to answer the question the judge asked them in the High Court, they then decided, because doctors apparently were so concerned about absolute confidence, they said they had to appeal this to the Supreme Court yeah. instead of holding a seminar for those doctors yeah. and educating them on what the High Court judgment actually meant. Instead, they dragged a dying woman oh, and her husband right. through a further three days in the Supreme Court right. and a further year nearly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of, and by, by the time everything was wrapped up, um, I think our last appearance in the Supreme Court was after Ruth had died. Right. Okay, so I think that was very interesting there, Keen, and um, something I probably wanted to switch to here, this conscious of time, I suppose, and it probably, we can't really leave Cervical Jake probably without talking about the, the Scali report and, and, and how that came about. And um, it's quite interesting, I suppose, they, how that, that report came about, I suppose. It wasn't really meant to be a report, is what you were telling me before. Mm. You know, it was mainly, he was trying to put a terms of reference together. Was that, that was basically, or what's the history to that report? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in the aftermath of the breaking of the cervical check scandal, um, there was, if you remember, uh, a hue and cry. Um, and the, the Oireachtas, uh, the Doyle voted to have a public inquiry into everything that had happened in cervical check and in order to inform themselves about what that inquiry should look into they agreed to ask Dr Gabriel Scali to take an overview and then write terms of reference for the public inquiry and that never happened there has never been a public inquiry and instead Dr. Scally started looking into things so that he could inform himself and come up with his terms of reference. And then he was asked at some point along the way, oh no, actually, you'll be the inquiry. So his terms of reference and everything around an investigation is based on terms of reference. His terms of reference had already been written mm. and they were written in such a limited way because he was only meant to come up with the questions to ask. So as a consequence, and I know Simon Harris doesn't seem to believe this because I've heard him dispute it on the radio. Um, his terms of reference did not allow him to look at medical records. Mm. It didn't allow him to look at any of the 221 slides. It didn't allow him to look at any of the reports, the audit reports uh, that are at the heart of this whole thing. Mm. He's never seen any of those. Mm. And I have a letter from his office confirming that. Yeah. Um, but it was fairly obvious that he didn't from reading his report. Mm. Um, so, like, what is the Scali report? Yeah. Okay, it has some very useful findings, yeah. very interesting findings. Um, useful would suggest that good had come of them. Certainly he had 50 recommendations, and yeah. most of those have been implemented, and you would hope that that has led to a better, safer mm. system yeah. of cervical screening in Ireland. Yeah. Um, but... So many of the key mistakes, some of which we touched on earlier, mm. the actions of individuals within organisations like Cervical Check, mm. the National Screening Service, the Department of Health, the HSE, uh, actions and inaction which cost so many lives and have cost so much ill health, none of those have been investigated. Mm. Failures to inspect, failures to follow up on problems which were known, none of that stuff has been looked at. And, um, and I don't see how that makes screening or any part of the health service safer or better. Yeah. But somebody in a senior position of authority decided that a public inquiry was not in somebody's interest. 
I think it certainly was in the interest of the patients of Ireland. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, it didn't happen and it won't happen. No, I don't think so at this stage. <laughs> not a chance. Yeah, no, not the way that report's represented. Now, in fairness to it, like, you know, I read through good, good portions of it. And, you know, like, as you say, like, the recommendations are so kind of, in my mind, they're, they just look so basic. I was surprised they weren't in place beforehand, you know. Mm-hmm. But as you say, I think what's what's missed there then is that, that full inquiry. And, you know, there's probably lessons learned due to, just not due to him and himself, it was just the scope he was given, you know, he, he couldn't have gone deep enough in that to really uncover all the issues that needed to be to be looked at and learned, you know, and I suppose that's kind of um, something we probably have to bring through to potentially a future uh, debacle um, before we, we'll actually find the answers to, I think, you know. Um, but I do believe, I, I think I heard, all right, he's coming back now uh, to do his final report uh, on the progress Um uh, I believe this year is, is meant to be happening. Well, he's, he's still engaged mm. in policing or monitoring the implementation of his recommendations, yeah. which is great. I mean, he does seem to be uh, a, a great guy. I've, I've never met him mm. or, or spoken mm. with him, um, but uh, he has contributed a huge amount. Mm. I think he's done as much as he could, could do, do within the limitations. And I think he also had a very practical problem, which was that if he went in hard on the labs... There was no alternative, mm, yeah, because we had closed down the uh-huh. fourteen uh, laboratories in Ireland. Yeah. We had shut down our service, so there was no plan B. Yeah, and we were completely dependent on, uh, well, the, the the laboratories. Quest Diagnostics in the US was dealing with forty five percent of our screening in twenty eighteen. Uh, MedLab in Sandyford in Dublin. Uh, was dealing with another 45% mm. and the Coombe Hospital in Dublin had retained 10%. Now, in 2022, 90% of our screening is done by Quest in the United States of America. Right, really, so it's and pretty much all out there, yeah. Yeah, so we've gone from 55% being left in Ireland to 10% left in Ireland. That's the current position. Mm. And, uh, and given that outsourcing, and particularly outsourcing to the United States of America, mm. was at the heart of this problem, I'm not reassured by that. Yeah. yeah. But the reason that's happened is that MedLab said goodbye. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think we were probably lucky to be able to uh, secure the rest of the screening to be done by Quest in the yeah. US. So we're probably, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Yeah, and there's a certain element of that. And I suppose it is probably a question for, for the country as well as to is this something we want to be able to do for ourselves? You know, like you, you even saw it in COVID, like the weren't, you know, and that was an exceptional circumstance, I'll take that, but we had to export a lot of our testing for that as well, you know. But, mm. you know, this is a fairly key skill that, you know, probably should be in in, uh, in Ireland, you know, and we do have the capability for it. You know, we have huge yeah. expertise in, in medicine and pharmaceuticals and so I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't have our own kind of, uh, you know, labs for this stuff, so... Uh, it's an interesting kind of, you know, what is that cost benefit of, of, of the outsourcing and the money you save versus kind of what, what you could be doing, you know, at home. Um, well, the Coombe Hospital in Dublin, mm-hmm. as I said, has had since 2008, all the way through cervical check, it has had 10% of the mm-hmm. screening in Ireland. It does not have 10% of the cases. Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah it's a much better it screening it performance. Has, oh, than, it's, it, it's remarkable. Yeah. And when you analyse... The number of slides that have been reviewed over these 11 years, 12 years of cervical check, for the years of, of available statistics, you, you compare that to the number of cases where discordance has been detected and you come up with a multiplier which tells you that if your slide was read in the Coombe Hospital in Dublin, sorry, I should put that another way, if your slide was read in the laboratory in Texas, where Vicky Phelan's slide was read, you are seven times more likely to be one of the 221 group than if your slide was read in the Coombe in Dublin. A phenomenal abnormality there, you know, between the um, two. Like. So, coincidence? Maybe not. But, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's uh, definitely a, a food for thought to bring, bring with us, I suppose, as, as, a, as a kind of a point. But I suppose before we wrap up and just conscious of time here, and as I say, we could probably talk all night about this, but... Um, I suppose maybe just kind of to, to leave you here or kind of understand like what's next in, in this for you? Like is, is it all kind of effectively wrapped up in your mind or are you still fighting for, for, for change or, or what, what do you think is the next important step in regard to 
uh, cervical check or, 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 or uh, the rights of, of patients here? The issues are still ongoing. Case after case brings up new issues and the legal teams for the defendants, who are the laboratories and the HSE, they quite rightly are constantly coming up with new ways to serve their clients and we have to then respond to that and uh, figure out better ways of presenting our client's case. And the whole thing has become so much more complicated than it was uh, in 2018. Mm. I mean, cases themselves don't bear any similarity really to something like Vicky and Jim Phelan's case. So that um, keeps us very busy and on our toes. Mm. And it's an intellectual challenge uh, every day, yeah. which is wonderful to mm. have and to come to work with. There is another side to it. There are different things that maybe you're trying to help make things a little bit better. Mm. Um, one of the issues that uh, we're focused on correcting uh, is a problem that came out of the Supreme Court decision in Ruth Morrissey's case where the court said, well, a case like Ruth Morrissey's, that had included not only her damages for her own pain and suffering uh, in her lifetime, but also looked at quantifying damages for additional care that would have to be put in place for her daughter mm. after she died. Um, and you can imagine how that would yeah. be an important part of the care uh, and, and, and the costings in a case. The Supreme Court said that, in fact, that element of a case cannot be brought until after the person has died because the loss itself hasn't crystallised yet. Mm. You're awarding damages for something that hasn't happened yet. Now, that seems reasonable in one sense, but the consequence of it is that not only now would a family have to bring a second case after their loved one had died, but there is a provision in the Civil Liability Act that appears to prevent that case from being brought because it says that only one action can be taken in respect of a death. A second subsequent action to provide for the care of the children would be a second action in respect of the death, or arguably would be at least. Mm. And the Supreme Court acknowledged that that appeared to present a problem, but it shied away from making a determination on that point and said that it was for the legislature to deal with. You're right. So basically, yeah. to have a choice here between doing it before or after the death, the case, so they're going to do one case, so it's either a case before the death or a case after the death. That's basically it the choice. It appears to be the way. Yeah. So imagine, I mean, a, a dying... Obviously, in the cases we're talking about here, we're talking about mothers. Um, a, a dying person has to make a decision. Do I bring an action now that I can be sure about to try and recoup some damages so that they'll be there to look after my family? Like Nobody's taken these cases to go off and, yeah, and, yeah, and, 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 and buy a sports yeah, car yeah, or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, this is about providing for children and family needs. Do I do that now or and, and risk my children not being able to bring any action for their care needs? Yeah. Or do I um, ab abandon my own case yes. um, and, uh, and leave that over? So that's a huge mm. problem and that needs to be resolved. And I know that uh, Alan Kelly has uh, been driving this with uh, a, a private or a, a amending legislation mm. that, that he has presented to the government, but they don't seem to be interested in yeah. pursuing the matter. Yeah, and people are suffering fatal injuries, typically through cancer misdiagnoses. Mm. They put them in this position every week and they're having to make terrible decisions mm. that they shouldn't have to make. Yeah. They should be entitled to recover in a single case while they're alive, not only their own losses and for their care as they die, but to know that their children are provided for so that they can die in peace. Yeah. That's not too much to ask for, but currently that is not the case. So that's something that we're very focused on as well. Yeah, and to me it sounds like a very simple and, and obvious uh, thing to, to, to provide clarity to, you know, to make sure that people are aware that that, you know, can be done. Yes. Um, and really you'd have to question why why, why it can't be done, you know, it seems, seems like a, a fairly simple idea and one that I think any reasonable person would should should be behind, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Listen, um, I think we're going to have to leave it at that then, Keen, because uh, just conscious, you know, the, the time people probably are starting to get a bit tired. It's hard, hard to listen to things, but I, I've really found that very informative and um, I wish you the best with the kind of future cases and, and thank you for, for, for keeping up the good fight, I suppose, and, and, and getting, um, 
results, I suppose, for, for the women here in these cases because um, they do deserve them in my mind anyway. Uh, I think they're badly let down. So uh, I'd like to say a big thanks for, for your effort and hard work in, in that regard and, and thanks very much for taking part today. Very welcome. Thank you, Brendan. And to all the listeners out there, thanks for staying with us throughout this. I hope you found it very informative and I hope you enjoyed the chats. Thanks very much.